0: This week on Myths and Legends, we're wrapping up this round of stories of Romulus and Remus, where we'll learn the hazards of letting birds decide your political system, and when two 17 year olds strike out on their own to start their own city, what could go wrong? Except everything. The creature this time is a giant armored earthworm from Brazil, who started a fight between two 19th century European scientists. This is Myths and Legends, episode 142b, Politics. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Previously on the podcast, Romulus and Remus entered the world, born to Rhea Silvia, after her father was deposed. A lot of stuff happened, but the twins were raised as intelligent and capable warriors who succeeded in helping their grandfather, the once outcast Numitor, which, yeah, absolutely sounds like cholesterol medication, reclaim his throne, the ruling seat passed down from the legendary warrior himself, Aeneas. Not wanting to step on grandpa's toes, Romulus and Remus decided to found a city of their own, about 20 miles away from Longa. Rhea Sylvia watched longingly as the silhouettes of her two sons shrank into the distance. A lone tear quivered and fell after a long blink. For the last 17 years, Rhea believed her boys to be dead. But then, just the night before, they had miraculously returned. She could barely understand it at first, believing their existence only after a tearful embrace. And now, it was only the morning after her world returned and it was already falling apart in the blink of an eye. The shepherds trailed behind the boys, ambling toward the horizon, along with a number of locals from Alba Longa. They believed in a dream that was Rome, put forth by Romulus and Remus. A city accepting of all, they said, a place of rest and asylum. Also, it didn't hurt that Numitor now had a safety valve of sorts. A colony of Alba Longa, where he could send people he deemed to be enemies, some of the residents of Alba Longa went willingly, while others found themselves encouraged to go. With spear points, with their now massive caravan, it took a couple of days to traverse the 20 or so miles between Alba Longa and the place where the boys had been raised. But finally, they found it. It was a place of seven hills alongside the Tiber River, so named for one of their great-great-grandfathers, the legendary King Tibernus, who actually drowned trying to cross it, as the young men looked upon the hill, they knew they had found their location for their new city. Romulus nodded. Yes, it was right here, he announced, sweeping an open hand across the hill in the center, the Palatine Hill. Remus stifled a laugh. What? No, you, you go with the biggest hill, the Aventine Hill, the one so named for Grandpa Aventus, who was buried there. But Romulus shook his head. No, the Palatine Hill was their hill. It was there, inside a cave that they had suckled the she-wolf, and survived. They had come to this place not wanting to be bound by the traditions and legacies of their father and grandfathers. This was their city. A new city. And choosing their grandfather's grave as its foundation was both regular stupid and symbolically stupid. It would be on the Palatine Hill. And that was final. Undeterred, Remus had an idea. They needed to build, right? And they had plenty of resources flowing in from Alba Longa, how about they divide up the responsibilities? You know, let Remus build upon the Aventine Hill and Romulus on the Palatine. That way, each brother could have his way. Romulus eyed his brother up and down and smiled. Sure. And so, the brothers began to build. The group that came from Alba Longa divided themselves up pretty evenly and, for a while, it looked as though things were going to be okay. Except that, as soon as there were two separate, sprawling cities emerging on opposite hills things were starting to get a bit dicey. Though Romulus and Remus had no ill will toward one another, their disparate groups did not share their history or relation. The herds of one group intermingled with those of the other. Tension grew, as both parties laid claim to the same arable land and hunting grounds. Soon, fights broke out, blood was shed, and it became obvious to the leading brothers that their two cities had to become one, under a single king. One day, a letter reached the hills. It was from Numitor, their grandfather, who piously kicked the can down the road. Their new colony was full of people that he'd kicked out of Alba Longa and Romulus and Remus's shepherd Avengers. So, naturally, the last thing he wanted to do was anger the colony, run by his demigod grandkids less than 20 miles away. His message read that since no one had really been keeping track of who was born first, Primogenitor went right out the window. Instead, Numitor had counseled them to seek the will of the gods. You boys need to work it out, he'd written. I don't have time to referee every little thing you do. And so, work it out they did. It was morning a few days later, and the brothers stood on their respective hills. Romulus on the Palatine Hill, and Remus on the Aventine. And they watched. The seers and the prophets announced that the birds would show Romulus and Remus who was to lead their new city. At first light, the watch would begin and the birds would make it clear. Each brother had a witness from the other settlement in attendance, in addition to a host of their own men. Everyone stood waiting, squinting with bated breath, and as soon as the morning light crested the horizon and spilled onto the plains to the east, Romulus turned to his own men. The contest was over. We've won. Go get Remus. When Remus crested the Palatine Hill not too long after, however, he was smiling. It really was from the gods then, because Romulus knew it too. Clearly, that's why he had sent for Remus. When the sun first broke over the hills, Remus had seen six vultures take off into the sky. The prophets had spoken. He had seen the birds first. He was to be king. Romulus' guy who had been with Remus reluctantly nodded in agreement. It was true. Romulus looked to the ground and swallowed hard. He was going to lie but his brother had seen the birds first. Obviously, his brother was supposed to be king. Except, at that very moment, a gasp went up from among Romulus's men. Twelve, twelve vultures rose from the ground when no one even knew they were there. Both brothers watched and counted as the birds flew higher into the sky and disappeared. You said you saw six vultures? Romulus asked. Why did you call me here, Romulus? Remus asked. Were you going to cheat? He absolutely was. Remus's man and Romulus' side piped up. Romulus ignored both. You only saw six vultures. I saw twelve. It looks, to me, like the gods have spoken, Romulus remarked. Falling serious, Remus reminded his brother that they were family. Twins, even they were on the same side, always. Blood came before all else. And it was bigger than the squabbles about who would be king over a few mounds of dirt. But Romulus was going to lie to him. And that changed things. If his brother would have been the first to see the birds, then he would have happily surrendered the Aventine Hill. Romulus shook his head, no, no, no. Who ever said anything about first? Sunrise was ancient history. Romulus saw more birds. That made him the rightful king. Remus stood there shaking his head, disappointment written all over his face. Maybe this was the will of the gods. Maybe it was worth it for him to finally see who his brother was. As Remus walked away from the Palatine Hill, Romulus watched his brother with a smile. The gods had spoken. The city was his. He needed only to take it. first hit came fast and hard. The farms in the Aventine Hill burned and the livestock ran off. Then, trade with Abolonga was disrupted and Remus's men were hit by bandits. Remus looked out on the Palatine Hill. He had no choice but to respond. Blood flowed and bodies piled as their cold war turned hot. There was someone caught in the middle, someone who knew both boys, their adoptive father, Faustulus, his farm, the one where he had raised the two boys, was literally in the middle, it was among the hills. He stood, a first-hand witness to the fire, destruction, and bloodshed between them all. We don't know what led to that night, that fateful night, when Faustulus decided to venture to the walls of Romulus's fort on the Palatine Hill. It was during yet another attack, when Remus had caught Romulus with his doors wide open, Faustula saw the men on either side and he had stepped into the middle of the fray. The fighters on both sides, those who had joined their factions and jumped into the violent tribalism of trying to control a plot of land by the river, had no idea who this expendable swineherd was who had suddenly blocked their path, and so they charged. At the same time, both Romulus and Remus screamed, as Spears impaled the only father they had ever known. The two kings, helpless, and they were at fault, and it was all too late. Romulus was closer and charged through the crowd, his men already backing up to the walls. He swatted his own men away with the power of the god of war, the strength of his own biological father, and pulled his dad inside. Remus fumed, shaking off the shock of all that just went down. Romulus didn't get to do that, He didn't get to lie and cheat and start this war that killed their father and then keep his body. Summoning the same strength of his twin brother, Remus burst through the line, dodging arrows, and threw himself upon the walls of the Palatine Hill. When he reached the top, he dashed the heads of any who dared to stand in his way against the stones, and he leapt to the courtyard below. Romulus recognized the fury in his brother's eyes, and scrambled as Remus raised his sword high above his head, and stopped. He stopped not because his brother was weeping next to the body of his father, sharing the same pain and anguish that he felt. He didn't stop because, according to his own words, it wasn't worth killing your family over a few mounds of dirt by a river. He stopped because Romulus, in his last-ditch effort to defend himself against the onslaught of his enraged brother, had found his spear, and with a wince and closed eyes, Thrusted it forward, catching Remus in the stomach. The sword clanged to the ground, and Romulus pulled the spear free. Remus's blood flowed and mingled with their father's. Romulus took his brother into his arms, shoulders heaving. Beyond it all, they were brothers, even after all this. Sobbing, Romulus rocked back and forth, holding fast to his brother and father. Outside, amid the clashing of spears, swords, and shields, Romulus's voice somehow carried over the battlefield. He looked out across the men fighting a war he started and held his brother above his head. He prayed his brother would forgive him for this, but these were hard men and he couldn't let them smell weakness in him. Romulus's voice boomed again. Remus, his brother, was dead. The war was over and he would be king of the city on the Palatine, and it would be called Rome. It was then that he threw Remus' body onto the ground before the walls. So too will be the fate of any man who comes over these walls. we'll see what happens when Romulus has the city to himself. But that will be right after this. (music) Romulus sat laughing before the Sabine king, Titus Tatius. Drink up, he coaxed. It was a party, come on. The Romans, as they were now calling themselves, began as a colony of outlaws and runaways. By now, however, they were becoming increasingly difficult to ignore. So when King Romulus sent an emissary, inviting King Titus to the games at the Circus Maximus, Titus accepted. It had been a few years since Romulus killed his brother. Both men, his father and brother, were buried with honors. And Remus' army had quickly surrendered to the lone king. At the time, the fighters on the Palatine and Aventine hills had only numbered 3,000. Their numbers had now multiplied. And when I say men, I mean men. The rough and tumble population was good for building the city, and carving out a place for themselves in the violent and hostile world. But not great when it came to future generations of Romans. A few women had come along with the initial settlers, and there were a few kids from the couplings that took place. But there wasn't enough to populate a new generation, true, people were living to the ripe old age of 45 now, so they had a little bit of time to figure it out. At the insistence of the Senate, which Romulus had set up after handpicking the 100 most respectable men, an envoy began to make the rounds to the nearby cities, with kind of a big ask. Their women. All of their women, actually. Romulus was good at spinning things, but you can only spin a colony of outlaws founded by a high profile murderer so well. And thus, no one wanted to take the Romans up on their offer to send all of their daughters to a city of violent, sexually frustrated men forever. Can't imagine why. At this point, the Sabines gathered at the Circus Maximus, watching a show. King Titus cleared his throat and began with a classic compliment sandwich. Hey, so, fun stuff, these games and chariot races. Super impressed by the city and all you've done. I heard about the thing with you and your brother and Now we're here. I feel like there was a narrative gap where you just built all this stuff and established the senate and different classes like the patricians and plebeians and whatnot. Romulus nodded. Yeah. All that was kind of boring, so let's not go into it. Cool. Cool. Titus continued. Uh, well, I don't know how else to say this, but we heard about you and your senators asking the surrounding cities for their entire female population. And while it's Definitely an intriguing idea, never seeing your loved ones again, because this is the ancient world and 100 miles might as well be on the moon. We're gonna pass. Once again, though, love what you guys did with the hills here. Romulus nodded. Yeah, he understood. He wasn't gonna make things awkward between the Romans and the Sabines. He wasn't gonna ask for their women. (laughs) You realize now how stupid that was. King Titus exhaled. That was so great to hear. King Romulus had no idea. Both men paused, and in the silence came a scream, then a dozen. I technically did not lie, Romulus offered above the chaos, tapping his fingers together uneasily. But he should clarify. They weren't going to ask for the women, because they were taking the women. All around the Circus Maximus, While the unsuspecting crowd sat riveted by the games, the Romans had been sneaking into position all around them. At the signal, an overwhelming number of soldiers stormed the grounds, wrapped their arms around the very first women they could, lifted them up, and carried them away. It took just a few moments before the crowds realized what was going on. By then, full chaos had ensued. It was a free for all. The richer patricians, the ruling class, hired men to kidnap the most beautiful of the Sabine daughters for them. (laughs) Couldn't be bothered with kidnapping their own wives, I guess. The rest of the scene was a free-for-all for the plebeians. There was little any of the parents could do in the face of the kidnappers, standing helplessly without any weapons, without armor, full of shock, as one daughter after another disappeared. There was a day to stand and fight the Romans over this outrage. But that day was not today, they recognized. They would never save their daughters if they were dead which was as true as it was cowardly. As Romulus and the other Romans watched the Sabine men shaking their fists as they ran away, promising that there would be consequences for their actions, someday, the Romans knew that their population problems were solved. It said that the feelings of the maidens were completely appeased by the assurances from their new, quote-unquote, husbands, that the Romans would be all the more affectionate to make up for the loss of family and country. And the writers insist that it wasn't an abduction, because Romulus went to each and every woman and convinced her to stay, with promises of civic and property rights, which is definitely true, and not the result of several later Roman writers trying to push past this deeply uncomfortable part of their city's legendary history. Unfortunately, when it came to taking retribution on Rome, the Sabine people needed to take a number. What had only been settlements on the Palatine and Aventine hills had spread to the others, and Rome now had walls, the Circus Maximus, a citadel on the Capitoline Hill, and more. They were growing richer and more powerful by the year, and soon the other cities began to take notice. Senina entered Roman territory, and it fell. The Antonates were next, followed by the Crustumini. The Romans were seemingly unstoppable. Their pattern became twofold: sack a city, then invite their populations to Rome as citizens, and it worked time and time again until the Sabines returned. They discovered her body crushed and broken, at the foot of the Capitoline Hill. They couldn't retrieve it. The arrows raining down from the sky prevented that. The Sabines had done it. They had taken the Capitoline Hill, one of the seven hills of Rome, and more were coming. Tarpeia, a Vestal Virgin, and daughter of the governor of the citadel atop the Capitoline Hill, had cut a deal. Now, if you're thinking that a good reason for cutting a deal with the enemy is that you're in a city full of outlaws who abducted most of the entire female population from nearby cities en masse, and you want to help the army liberate said female population, yeah, that's a good reason. Except that wasn't Tarpeia's reason. At least according to Livy, her reasoning was pretty jewels. Given her father's access to the citadel, she had been approached quietly by one of the Sabine women still in contact with people back home. The Sabines wanted to come and liberate their women, and they wanted the citadel. Knowing that the Sabines wore gold bracelets, Tarpeia agreed. She said she'd do it for what the Sabines wore on their left arms. So, a night a few months later, Tarpeia stood looking down from the Capitoline Hill, the sound of boots rumbling below. With a smile, she opened the heavy door to the Citadel. It was then, however, that she noticed something. On their left arms weren't gold bracelets at all, but rather shields. She turned to the leader, demanding her payment or she'd sound the alarm. He replied that he remembered what she bargained for, what they wore on their left arms, was it? With a grin, he bashed her with the shield. Others joined in, and soon, Tarpeia fell to the shields before she could sound the alarm. Her body tossed down the hill. Now, Romulus had a problem. He heard about the capture of the Capitoline Hill upon his return from yet another war. The Sabines, led by King Titus Tatius, controlled the citadel, and he returned to find the Sabines ready for war. Romulus smiled publicly, but privately, he despaired. The Sabines were in the city, and they controlled the citadel. They had even murdered a Vestal Virgin, one of Romulus's men. A general with a not-at-all-on-the-nose name of Hostius Hostilius, rode out and demanded that Titus Tatius meet him in single combat to settle this once and for all. Romulus watched on the edge of his seat as Titus Tatius used both his indignation and the high ground to rebuff and kill Hostius Hostilius. When Hostilius' body thudded to the ground, the Sabines took advantage of the delicate moment and charged the Romans, forcing them to abandon all fortifications and positions, and pushing them back to the Palatine Hill, back to Romulus's original fort. As it stood, their fortunes were now reversed. The Romans were stuck on one little hill fort, surrounded by the Sabines in their own city. Tetestatius circled the fort, calling out for Romulus. The Sabine king had waited for this for years. The Romans had been conquered, and Romulus needed to come out, or he was coming in. Romulus could see that King Titus was right. They had been defeated, but he would not surrender. Rome might fall, but he would die on his feet with a spear in his hand. As the gate opened, Romulus took a deep breath, fixed his spear in front of him, and led the charge toward the host that, at this point with their reinforcements, was a few times his size he knew he was charging to his death. He only hoped that the city of Rome would live on, even if he didn't. As he galloped toward the Sabines, he gritted his teeth and came to a halt at the last possible moment. Romulus almost fell from his horse, skidding to a stop before he hit them. Some of his men did fall, but the women were unharmed. It was the Sabine women, the ones they had kidnapped a few years back. Livy tells us that it was the Sabine women Who, in a critical moment, quote, threw off all womanish fears in their distress, which, yes, somehow he was able to compliment them and slide in a little sexist dig at the same time. The women of the city stood between the clashing armies, rushing out the moment before it broke out into violence. They had something to say. Romulus and the Romans had done a terrible thing when they kidnapped the woman, but what was done was done. Now, they were the wives of the Romans. They turned from their fathers and brothers to the Romans. They were the wives of the Romans, but they were the children of the Sabines. This war was over them, and no matter who won, they lost. If the Romans won, they lost their family. If the Sabines won, they lost their husbands and the fathers of their new children. So, since this war was over them, they would sacrifice themselves if the Sabines couldn't stomach the thought of their daughters being Romans, then they could kill the daughters. If this was the only way to make peace and save their city and their children, then the Sabines turned to the Romans and begged their husbands to kill them. It was better that than living as widows or orphans. Romulus and Titus Tatius met eyes in the battlefield, and they both threw down their weapons. Their armies followed suit, and they stepped forward to talk. In the end, it took much more than peace. When the Sabines came to join Rome, all of them, it doubled Rome's population overnight. But they wouldn't come without assurances. The chief of which was that Romulus and Titus Tatius would become co-rulers of the city of Rome, co-kings. Sound familiar? Now, Romulus killed his brother to be the sole ruler of Rome. And so it's a little difficult to buy that the thing that was such an issue for two brothers now suddenly works when it comes to Romulus, the only living founder of the city of Rome and the king of a faraway city who, until 10 minutes ago, hated the Romans. Still, somehow, it did work. For six years, they ruled together. They even went to war together once. It worked because the two kings didn't work together. Romulus and Titus Tatius found that the less they saw of each other, the less likely they were to kill each other to send the city into chaos and start a civil war. And so it was that six years after the Romans and the Sabines united, a group of ambassadors bowed before Romulus and the Senate. They had come all the way from Lavinium, an area about 30 miles south of Rome. They said that the Romans had been robbing their lands, driving their herds back to Rome, and killing anyone who tried to defend themselves or gave chase. They demanded that the guilty parties come back to Lavinium and be tried for their crimes they said that the herds were being driven to one of the hills by the river, the Capitoline Hill. Romulus sighed. Titus Tatius. The other king of Rome stormed into the hall, saying how dare these men come into their city, spouting lies about him and his men. No one will be leaving Rome today. And if the men of Lavinium wanted justice for their so-called crimes, they could come and appear before a Roman judge. With a sneer, the ambassadors assured Titus Tatius that they would be back, and stormed from the hall. Okay, you totally did this, right? Romulus said to Titus Tatius as the Lavinians left. Oh, absolutely, Titus replied. But he added that, you know, Rom shouldn't worry about it. He had a feeling that these guys were going to drop the charges before they made it back home. Oh, so you're going to murder them before they get home then? What? No, Titus Tatius said, though he was clearly nodding. Look, said Romulus, it's the ancient world. We're warrior kings over what started essentially as a penal colony. I got this position because I murdered my brother, and you got it because we kidnapped your daughters. If you're going to kill these guys, it's completely cool. I just need to be in the loop. (laughs) Titus Tatius didn't know what Romulus was talking about. Wink. Romulus rolled his eyes. You just said wink. Okay, whatever Titus wasn't going to do, he needed to make sure it was clean. But, of course, it wasn't clean. Not by a long shot. The Romans chased down the group of ambassadors, but... Wisely thinking that the Romans might do exactly that, the Lavinians were ready. A few died in their beds, but more escaped back to Lavinium, where they rallied the city around the fact that the Romans, more specifically King Titus Tatius, the bad cop to Romulus's good cop, were robbing them. But not only that, they had violated the sacred laws and slaughtered their ambassadors. Difficult though it was, the Lavinians remained quiet. They remained silent, because while they may not be in Rome, there was an altar in Lavinium that required the attention of the Roman kings for the prosperity of their city. The Romans that had been sent to take care of the ambassadors kept the failure of the mission to kill the ambassadors to themselves. And so, when there was no political blowback, the co-kings naturally assumed that the whole thing had been silenced before the word made it back to Lavinium. Their assumption proved correct, too. That was, until Romulus and Titus went unsuspecting to a temple in Lavinium, kneeling before the altar with Romulus by his side. Titus bristled, and a chill ran down his spine. A split second later, Lavinians fell upon Titus Tatius, driving a spear clear through his chest. Romulus jumped to his feet, but there was nothing he could do. The Lavinians said that they didn't want a war, only justice. And Romulus, staring down several spears, agreed that they had a point. In the end, they let Romulus return to Rome with the body of his fallen co-king. Justice had finally been served. Now, if you think the optics of coming home with your co-king in a body bag, making you the sole ruler of the city in a deja vu kind of situation, looks kind of bad, Romulus didn't. He saw no issue with not only condemning the men who ran the botched mission to silence the Lavinians, and when a group of warriors found and kidnapped King Titus's killers, So they could stand before the king and answer for their crimes, Romulus proceeded to pardon them instead. They were only taking their sacred rights to avenge violence with violence, he declared, and let them go with assured safety back to Lavinium. With a wave of his hand, Romulus dismissed the court and stood on the Palatine Hill looking out across the city. His city. Everyone who had stood in his way was now dead. And he was, once again, the sole king of the most powerful city in the region, and the Sabines were finally under heel to boot. It had come together perfectly. Titus had died by his own stupidity. No one could argue that. He had angered the Lavinians, and the Lavinians had killed him. It was just lucky that the scenario unfolded to take advantage of Titus's exact foibles and character flaws, and that the sole beneficiary of Titus's poor decision-making was Romulus. That same Romulus, who would approve the Senate's successor to Titus Tatius to represent the Sabine portion of the population. But, you know, those squabbling old patricians couldn't agree on anything. And if they did, it might take a long time for the replacement to be approved by Romulus. It was funny, really. While there were several potential replacements discussed in the Senate, nearly all of them voluntarily removed themselves from consideration after a single meeting with King Romulus. Months passed, then a year. finally, potential co-king stopped coming forward, leaving Romulus with what he had fought for, with what he had killed for. Complete, uncontested power over the city of Rome. this is a good place for us to put a bookmark on the story of Romulus. Alone at the top, Romulus has never really been a great guy. From the killing of his brother to the abduction of the Sabines, he's always made choices that were, at best, questionable. But now, with access to limitless power at the helm of a state he essentially created, and one that owes any claims of legitimacy it has to him, we'll see the gloves really come off. The next time we catch up to Romulus... We'll see that when he doesn't have anyone to challenge him, how corrupting power can be. I say next time because we're going to take a break from the Romulus story and catch up at a later date. Next week, it's the most adorable bloody revenge tale ever from Japanese folklore. I want to say thanks to Jay Stark Art, Nice Terrace A, Samina, XX Forever Strong, XX, Alk Lost, Strawberry Jam, Wild Whalen, Homer in the Odyssey, Brad A. Ward, Better Indeed. Catet, Kay Loves Myths, Bossy beekeeper 93 and sonata115 for the reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. It is so great to hear from you. And if you'd like to leave a review, Apple Podcasts is still the best place. You can find the show there at apple.mythpodcast.com The creature this week is the minocau, from Brazilian folklore. The Minocow is Just your normal earthworm. That's 150 feet long and 20 feet wide and fully armored with a pig snout and loves to pop out and grab people and livestock by their bellies and drag them underground to devour them in his lair. So, you know, just like a normal earthworm, except for those few minor details. It must have a strong stomach too because one of its favorite snacks is horned cattle that it catches as the animal is swimming across a lake. It's said to make sinkholes uproot trees and damage roads and make a sound like thunder as it moves through the ground. Unlike a lot of the creatures on this podcast, this one was given the scientific treatment. It was 1800 science though, so yeah. It was mentioned in the scientific journal Nature in 1878 when apparently talking to one resident in a town of rural Brazil was science. The writer, Dr. Fritz Muller, said that he found a dead specimen and was gonna bring it back to Britain surprise, that never really materialized. A naturalist stepped in and said that, one, Minaco is really close to minoca, Portuguese for earthworm. So let's not go too crazy. And two, it's probably just a larger than normal South American lungfish, which is just a four or five foot long freshwater fish with the body of an eel. Not to be outdone, Dr. Mueller speculated that the Minnokau might just be a quote, relic of a race of giant armadillo, which in past geological epics, we're so abundant in southern Brazil. Guys, obviously it's not a giant armored earthworm. That would be ridiculous. It's a giant armadillo. That makes way more sense. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free. And the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Colmes. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening